Welcome to the New Books Network. So welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Anielle Christin, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at Stanford University, about her new book, Metrics at Work, Journalism and the Contested Meaning of Algorithms. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, welcome. Thank you. Uh, this is a great book. It's really like it's perfectly timed given uh, the fact that we're in the middle, like almost kind of globally of people asking questions about journalism and asking questions about algorithms. Um, so I, I think, you know, it, it, in some ways it's um, almost the perfect book to uh, to speak to these public concerns, but also it's a really serious bit of academic work as well, which you know, is is really important, I think. Um, and I guess the place to start is maybe around what the subject of the book actually is, because I guess uh, when people hear the term like metrics or they hear the term algorithm, like they, they kind of know what, what it means, but actually um, you've got a very kind of specific um, thing that you're focused on, which is around how metrics and analytics uh, I guess used as kind of resources for journalists. So it'd be good to to clear the ground about what it is that these things actually are. Sure. So basically, um, when the news started moving online, right? So like when journalists started uh, publishing articles um, online, and when news organization created websites for their um, articles to share it with an online audience. Um, they started relying on what's called web analytics or audience metrics, which are basically um, fine-grained digital data about what online users are doing online on the website at any given moment. Um, and so uh, in the book, I talk about one of the most popular of these um, of the software programs that provide um, these uh, web analytics, and it's called Chartbeat. Um, so Chartbeat was created in New York in 2009, and it basically provides uh, very detailed data about the audience to journalists themselves. So typically you have like a kind of dashboard um, and the dashboard shows um, how many um, readers are on the website at any given point in time. It's like updated every couple of seconds. And so you get this really kind of fine-grained data about, about traffic. Um, and it also provides uh, a lot more information. For instance, um, a ranking of the most popular articles, again, in real time, right? So you can see uh, which of the articles currently online on the website uh, get the most att- attention, get the most traction uh, with online readers. Um, it also gives information about how long um, do readers stay on an article. And that's actually a pretty depressing number uh, for most journalists <laughs> because the average um, the average time engaged, it's called, so time engaged with any given piece of content is like under one minute, right? So like usually it's around 53, 54 seconds. Um, and then it also gives information about uh, where readers come from. So like how they access the article. Did they find it on Twitter or on Facebook? Uh, did they go through the homepage? Did they search for some of the key terms on Google? And then uh, got to the article through uh, Google's um, search results, etc. And so what's really interesting is that this kind of software program, so these kinds of analytic software programs have really changed 
um, the relationship between journalists and their readers. And here, I think that a tiny bit of, um, of background is important. Um, traditionally, uh, of course, uh, news organizations had metrics about the audience, right? That's what marketing departments do. Um, and that's what news organizations need to sell um, advertising space to uh, brands, right? They need to be able to say, hey, like, look, our audience is like, has these kinds of segments. We cater to like urban uh, men between uh, 35 and 55, you know, and that's how they're going to price um, their advertising space. But these kinds of traditional metrics in uh, print journalism were only used in marketing departments and they were uh, pretty broad, right? So they were really about the audience as a whole and they were certainly not uh, in real time and not as detailed as uh, what can be gathered online through server data. Uh, and so with the kind of move to online news, uh, one of the big transformations is that suddenly uh, journalists and editors were able to see this very detailed information about what their readers liked, what they didn't like, which articles were popular with the audience and which articles were not popular with the audience. And here, like unsurprisingly, um, they were in for a couple of big surprises, uh, namely that um, some of the articles that are the most prestigious, some of the topics that are the most prestigious in newsrooms um, do not do so well with the audience, whereas articles that are not and topics that are not so prestigious within newsrooms, in fact, are very popular with readers. And so here we can take um, a couple of, you know, paradigmatic examples, um, articles about um, Kate uh, Middleton or Kim Kardashian or, you know, whomever kind of celebrities you want to pick, uh, typically uh, do not um, are not very prestigious in terms of um, journalistic values, but they do really well with the audience and vice versa. Typically news about, um, you know, international conflicts, politics, um, economics, also arts and culture. So that's, um, it depends a bit um, that, you know, are typically like more uh, legitimate or more prestigious amongst journalists uh, do not attract as much traffic. So what web analytics are doing are, is like basically representing these kind of preferences of the audience in a quantitative form at the center of the newsroom and put it literally in front of the eyes of every single journalist um, who is working on a computer, typing their articles and kind of uh, giving them that information about what the public prefers. I mean, this is a story that um, people will be familiar with. And I guess, you know, it's the kind of story where we, we've moved pretty quickly to say this is what has like killed journalism and, you know, the old kind of like, you know, sort of vision of a quality broadsheet newspaper has been destroyed by these kind of, you know, clickbaity, um, almost, you know, sort of like fast food style, giving the readers the, you know, the kind of basest and worst um, sorts of, of, of kind of um, subjects and delivered in, in these, you know, kind of uh, eye-catching and, you know, uh, arresting ways to generate both clicks and, you know, time spent on the page. And one of the things I really like about the book is the book says, well, hang on, like, is, is that even true? And at the center of the book's um, analysis is both, I, I guess, a kind of a, a framework for understanding what journalists actually think and how they actually behave, but also thinking about 
you know, almost the kind of the set of institutions or, or we might say the kind of the field uh, of journalism and, and, and how's, how it's responded. So before we kind of get into the, the examples that you, you draw from, from the States and, and from France, it's probably worth spending a little bit of time thinking about, I guess, the kind of the broad, um, what we might think of as kind of like theories of judgment and theories of, of evaluation that animate um, part of the journalistic field and, and certainly animate your case studies. And one of these is what you call a kind of editorial approach. And the other one is the kind of click-based approach. So, so what are they and, and, and why, I guess, do they you know, kind of matter in, in, in understanding the impact of um, digital on journalism? This is a really good question. And so um, just to kind of uh, go back a tiny bit about, about what you were saying about like, oh, like, you know, there is a familiar story about kind of the decline of journalism and journalism going down the drain and towards kind of more clickbait and kind of fast foodie type of content. So use of the food metaphor, by the way, is just so interesting when we think about um, quality news, etc. cetera. Uh, I won't go too much into it, but it's just really interesting. Um, so I think that like, yeah, so basically like the book really argues against like kind of what we could call like uh, two kind of uh, broad um, kind of uh, preconception of what's going on. The first one is, oh, it's the end of quality information. Everything's going to get worse. It's all clickbait content. And, you know, uh, it's just like we don't have the good old newspapers, the good old quality newspapers that we used to have. Uh, and therefore, like, you know, the future is doomed, kind of. Um, the other story, which I'm uh, equally kind of um, opposed to, is like, oh, there is nothing new. Uh, journalism has always been both a business and a kind of public good. That's been the case since the early 19th century in all countries, right? Um, except in places where journalism is more of a public institution, and I'm happy to talk more about that. Um, but, you know, there is always this kind of tension between, shall we say, market and professional forces, right? And that's, um, and so there is nothing new with um, online news. And so basically what the book tries to do is to be like, well, um, it's like what sociologists usually do. It's like, well, a kind of in-between road, like as in like, no, some things are changing, uh, but not everything is changing. And that's kind of that, uh, shall we say, gradual uh, process of change and uneven process of change that's kind of at the center of the book. And so to make sense of it, um, I basically argue that um, the best way to understand what's going on within newsrooms right now, and that's based on um, four years of ethnographic fieldwork, and uh, we can talk more about this when we get into the uh, the details of the book. But like, uh, it's basically that like newsrooms right now are really kind of um, uh, stuck in a in a bit of a of a tense uh, relationship between two different ways. Uh, of making sense of what's good journalism in 2000, in the 2010s, right? 2020s. Um, on the one hand, there is what I call this editorial mode of evaluation, which is basically this kind of traditional uh, way of assessing quality in journalistic fields. So typically that means what's a good journalist and what's a good article? Well, a good journalist and a good article uh, typically um, are respected by their peers, right? So in, this, in that sense, it's a bit like academia. It's like prestige um, and kind of uh, recognition comes from the peers, so the other journalists, and in academia, other academics, obviously. Um, it, it really is about providing new information 
new content, a new angle uh, on a given topic. So it's really about originality and kind of um, uh, increasing the knowledge that we have about the world. Um, and then um, basically the main kind of marker of success is to get, say, a compliment or even better to be imitated by other journalists, right? So typically that would mean either getting a compliment or whatever, like a kind word from your editor-in-chief being like, oh, wow, that was a really important article. I'm so glad we uh, got the breaking news on this. Like, congratulations. Or it meant another news organization um, being like, oh, you know, say like the Guardian wrote that, ta, 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 ta. this is really important because ta, 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 right? And so um, this is a kind of um, editorial mode of evaluation, which we could also call the kind of professional or like kind of traditional journalistic way of assessing um, quality. And that's still certainly there in web newsrooms right? Uh, journalists in web newsrooms are not, um, you know, running after clickbait. Many of them care deeply about producing important new content, right? And kind of um, uh, holding, holding, for example, uh, institutional powers accountable, um, finding breaking news about uh, topics that people didn't know about, providing uh, incisive angles or like a new analysis of something that we thought we understand, etc. But, and that's the second part of the of the analysis, at the same time, news organizations online are also um, kind of involved in another uh, way of assessing quality. And that's what I call the click-based mode of evaluation. And that in turn, I think, is a bit new. So according to the to this kind of click-based mode of evaluation, really, um, the primary goal of a journalist is to resonate with the audience right? It's to attract the attention of the public. It's to be in sync with the public. And so what does that mean? Well, that means typically having your article go viral on social media. It's getting a lot of comments, a lot of tweets, a lot of retweets, a lot of likes. It's about um, being um, kind of uh, being in the buzz, right? Having a kind of um, clicky headline, uh, getting people interested and kind of attracting the attention of what I call algorithmic publics. So these publics that are online, that are dispersed through um, and mediated through algorithmic procedures on social media platforms primarily. And so coming to um, the website or coming to the article through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., um, and so um, that's really what I what I talk about in the book is how uh, news organizations are trying to negotiate the tension between these very different ways of assessing quality in journalism now that everything operates online. And you, you've got two case studies for this. One is what you call the notebook, uh, which is um, in. America in, in New York, and then the other is, I, I guess, would be Laplace, um, which um, is is a French site. And it, what was most interesting was, you know, we, we could be again, you know, we've talked about the cliches of, of clickbait and um, fears about the decline of journalism. You know, we could be quite cliched in that we'd expect, you know, a kind of an aggressive. Um, you, know, you know, kind of um, numbers and metrics driven uh, approach from the American case study, you know, much more to do with that buzz, as you said, that, you know, kind of engagement with the algorithm public. And then a series of cliches about our French 
case study about, you know, the kind of um, clinging to the editorial or, you know, journalistic um, recognition uh, approach. But actually what you show kind of wonderfully is how both really face the same dilemmas, the same problems, you know, the same kind of issues around um, questions of commercial or, or institutional survival. And, you, you know, they, they, they kind of deal with them differently and, they, you know, they're really obviously distinctive. But actually, you know, you see similar things kind of bubbling up and, and, and coming through. And I guess actually um, as a way of introducing both case studies, we could pick up on that idea of algorithmic publics, which, you know, in the New York context was about, you know, kind of like commercial traffic and maybe like trusting the numbers to tell um, the institution what the public were. But in Paris, it was much more to do with, you know, kind of like civic duty and the journalists being a bit more ambivalent. So, so maybe as a big question, you know, who are the notebook, who are Laplace, and, and how do they understand the algorithmic publics? Sure. So um, when I started this project, um, I, I had in mind this idea that like, um, when we think about digital technologies, uh, when we think about the internet and about all the algorithmic procedures that, um, shall we say, make the internet work, right? Um, we tend to think about these processes in terms of like global standardization. Uh, so basically, and you'll see that in most kind of media headlines and, and a lot of academic articles, actually, um, that, you know, because we're transitioning to um, online um, platforms and online um, mediation, uh, everything and everybody's becoming more similar, right? And typically everything's obsessed with, everybody's obsessed with clicks, everybody's trying to go viral. Um, and in the case of journalism, uh, news organizations are going through this kind of standardization process where um, news headlines and articles content are becoming more increasingly similar um, uh, with uh, the kind of diffusion of uh, of the internet. And so I wanted to like see if that was really the case. And so to do that, I picked um, news websites in two countries that are often uh, described as having the most um, kind of opposite kinds of journalistic traditions. And that would be uh, the US and France. Of course, there is also a backstory behind it, which is that I'm French and I did my PhD in the US. And so that was also a very convenient reason to go back and spend a couple of years in Paris. And yeah, uh, so there's always this kind of backstories behind comparisons, but um, the comparison was also um, justified by the fact that um, journalism in the US and France has like these very different features. Um, and I can go pretty quickly around it, but basically journalism is often in the US is often characterized as being primarily dominated by market pressures. Um, so extremely strong market pressure, strong kind of financial pressure starting in the 1980s uh, with the development of kind of uh, media conglomerates that um, really took over the journalistic landscape in uh, the United States. Um, and also in the American context, a very strong kind of professional definition of what it means to be a journalist, right? With like professional associations, with very strong journalistic schools, um, with uh, very strong kind of um, um, uh, norms surrounding journalistic professionalism, for example, the norm of objectivity. Uh, so the idea is that journalists have to be objective and they have to do the pros and cons of, of every single um, topic, etc. Um, whereas um, in the French context, um, traditionally, the way in which French journalism has been described 
um, is more as a as a public oriented or a civic um, profession, right? So that you know, following the kind of Dreyfus affair um, in the late nineteenth century, uh, really French journalists see themselves as being in charge of guiding public opinion and uh, shaping the public debate. And of course, that goes with the fact that um, there are much um, lower market pressures in uh, the French context for a range of reasons. But um, one of the main ones is that uh, media production is very much protected and funded by the state. So there are uh, many, there is a strong public broadcast system like in the UK, uh, and there are many subsidies both for news organizations and for journalists, um, kind of uh, protecting them from the pressure of uh, market forces. So for all of these reasons, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, so let's let's see, let's compare perhaps um, news websites in uh, the two countries and how they deal with um, analytics and audience metrics, right? So do we see a kind of this process of convergence and standardization that uh, people are talking about and like, you know, oh, everything's going kind of clickbaity, um, it's awful, it's the end of journalism, or do we see um, a difference uh, based on these kind of distinct traditions of um, journalistic professionalism um, and, and what, what, what can we do there? Um, and so what I did to study that, so I'm an ethnographer, uh, which means that I do uh, primarily interviews and observations. And so I ended up um, doing kind of intensive uh, ethnographic fieldwork in a total of five newsrooms um, in New York and in Paris. Um, and, and the book eventually focused on two of these newsrooms. So one in New York, which I call The Notebook, and the one in Paris, which I call La Place. So um, there are lots of reasons to compare these two newsrooms. And here, it, you know, I get into this whole kind of methodological thing about how can you compare things that are comparable. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about that. But, um, but one way of saying it is just that, so they are both online-only newsrooms. They both rely um, exclusively on advertising revenues um, to kind of sustain themselves. And advertising revenues in terms like depends on traffic, right? It's like the more traffic you get, the more revenues you get. Um, and so they both kind of started paying a lot of attention to traffic numbers in 2009, 2010. Um, they were both created uh, between 2006 and 2009. Obviously, I use pseudonyms. Um, so this is, this is not the real name of the two publications. Uh, people can find out what the actual names of these publications are, but um, I think that it's really important to use pseudonyms, um, in part because it allows us to think more in analytical terms uh, rather than just like, oh, it's this website. Well, I know what they do, like, you know, and I don't care, whatever. So, like, um, there is a big component of my project why I care a lot about anonymizing um, the websites and the individuals that I um, studied. And so, based on this comparison, um, I found a couple of things that um, are really uh, important. And, and that goes into the question about algorithmic publics that you asked, Dave. And sorry, this is, I guess, a bit of a circuitous response uh, to no, the question. It, it's it's perfect actually because we we now have exactly the scene for this this question of algorithmic publics and you know how on the one hand New York you know seemingly has got like a really distinctive really kind of American approach and Paris has this um, you, you know um, distinctive French approach and maybe if you set up those two things we'll kind of like interrogate them and take them apart a bit afterwards. Cool. 
So basically, so okay, so I started spending time in the two newsrooms, and I guess um, the the way the way in which I analyze it in the book is that I talk about this as a process of like divergence within convergence, in the sense that there are strong forces towards convergence that kind of bring the two websites a bit closer to each other in what they do and how they deal with traffic metrics. But at the same time, there are also really important differences. So let me talk a tiny bit about the convergence side first and then uh, move to um, the kind of differences. So first on the convergence side, what I found, and and, and I guess that's uh, pretty obvious since the book is really about that, um, is that metrics play a crucial role in uh, both of these newsrooms that I studied. So that was fascinating, right? So I traveled back and forth between New York and Paris. So two newsrooms were very different. You know, one of them was in Manhattan. The other one was like in the northeast of Paris in like a publicly funded building. Uh, One of them was like part of this much broader kind of media conglomerate. The other one wasn't until it was. Um, but, But what's interesting is that the two newsrooms used exactly the same software program to measure traffic numbers. And that software program was the one that I mentioned before, Chartbeat, right? So they used the same dashboard and they had the dashboard opened on their screens um, at about the same times. And so they were using the same metrics, the same programs, the same um, um, kind of visualization of traffic numbers, etc. So that was kind of interesting. But more interesting was the fact that in both newsrooms, I found this uh, very strong tension and conflict and doubt and fear about this kind of um, uh, complicated dance between the editorial and the click-based mode of evaluation that I mentioned earlier, right? So in both places, um, editors and journalists like talked very often about like, oh, but should we publish this? This article is not really interesting, journalistically speaking, but it's going to do great in terms of traffic. So what do you think? Should we do it? And then someone else would be like, oh, I don't know. Like, I guess, well, you know what? Like, we're publishing this other article, which is really important, journalistically speaking, but that's not going to do well in terms of traffic. So we have this kind of buying off one for the other, right? So we're going to publish this kind of trashy piece that's going to do great in terms of traffic. And this is going to kind of, uh, shall we say, pay for um, this other piece, this other article, which is about, say, Syria uh, and the civil war in Syria that no one's going to read. But we all agree as journalists that we should publish something about this because it's important, right? So I kept seeing in the two newsrooms these kind of discussions about, like, how do you kind of negotiate and how do you kind of balance click-based and editorial imperatives and how do you use kind of cross-subsidization processes where like one clicky article is gonna, one click-oriented, click-baity type of article is gonna pay for, um, in a way, uh, one kind of journalistically ambitious article and vice versa, right? So like in both newsrooms, there was this complicated dance between um, the two things. And in both newsrooms, uh, what I saw, and that's uh, to your question, Dave, um, is that journalists really paid close attention to the preferences of their algorithmic public. So again, these publics, these audience members, these readers uh, mediated through uh, these algorithmic procedures and represented by uh, Chartbeat, 
um, and the, the chart beat dashboard in the newsroom. And so it was really interesting because they kind of kept track of what readers were thinking and what how they were behaving and what kind of preferences they had. And based on that, they tried to kind of... Um, uh, shall we say, tweak their content to better address the preferences of these readers, right? So typically, they would be like, huh, it's interesting. You know, we published a couple of articles about that niche topic. Um, and turns out they got pretty popular, in fact, like, you know, like, quite a number of readers clicked on them and liked them and then commented on them. So perhaps we should put the journalist on this beat, which we weren't covering before, but I guess there is an audience for that. And so we should probably cater to this. And this is also an important topic. It would be nice to have kind of a vertical or have like a segment of the website about this. So, and that that's exactly the kind of like um, iterative process where like journalists would pay closer attention to what readers were doing um, that I saw in both um, um, in both countries, right? Both at the notebook and Laplace. So that's kind of on the convergent side. Um, but of course, there were also important differences. And that's, you know, always the kind of uh, point of comparative studies is that, you know, you get, of, uh, you get interested in differences because, you know, when you compare, you're always going to find differences. Um, and, so, and so on the kind of um, distinction on the different side, um, Basically, what I found was that, so it's like a finding in two levels. So the first striking finding, especially given the different traditions of journalism in the U.S. and France, what I was expecting going into the field and starting to spend time in the two newsrooms was that Americans would be obsessed with traffic numbers and would try to maximize them, whereas French journalists would be super critical of traffic numbers and would say like, ah, this is so bad, it's really uh, trashy, like, you know, I don't want to deal with this. So I was expecting this kind of caricatural, like, you know, French versus American way of dealing with um, market um, pressures, right? Uh, whereas, in fact, what I found when I started spending time uh, during my ethnographic fieldwork in the two newsrooms, it was kind of the opposite, uh, which was really strange, um, in the sense that in uh, the New York newsroom at the at the Notebook, um, journalists basically they were aware of metrics. They definitely knew what the metrics were, but they weren't super attached to them, uh, and they weren't really fixating on them. They were like, "Oh yeah, metrics, ah, that's really annoying, but it's part of the job now." But you know, at the same time, like I don't really care. I think that my job as a journalist is to write good articles, articles that you know are going to get me promoted eventually. So articles with good content that my colleagues and my editor in chief like. I don't have to deal with this market pressure stuff. That's the job of editors and marketing departments. It's not my job as a journalist, right? So that was the kind of thing in the U.S. newsrooms, which was this kind of strong division of labor uh, and kind of professional um, protection, shall we say, where journalists were saying, no, no, I have to focus on my craft. And my craft is to write good articles. The metric stuff, that's not for me to maximize. That's not for me to pay attention to. That's a job of editors-in-chief and marketing departments and all of these people. And it's their job, not mine. So that was kind of the, of the, the, the New York kind of um, newsroom situation. Whereas in the French newsroom, in the Parisian newsroom, La Place, um, it was kind of the opposite in a way, in the sense that everybody was kind of fixating on traffic metrics. So Chartbeat was open at all, all the time on everybody's computer. They, as soon as a journalist published an article, 
online on the website, they would open Chartbeat and see um, how the article was doing in terms of popularity. They kept making jokes about traffic numbers, as in like, ah, well, this topic, like for sure, you're going to get a million clicks. Like, well, as my topic, like, you know, is not going to get a million clicks because it doesn't talk about sex. Like, ha, ha, ha. And so they would have this, like, um, fixation about metrics that had really become like a kind of fixture of the informal life of the newsroom. Um, and uh, it was interesting in the French context because they were also very critical of metrics. So it was a kind of a, of a double-sided um, attitude, right? So on the one hand, they fixated on metrics and in fact, they kept talking about them, etc. But then during the interviews or even with each other, they would also um, have a very critical discourse about metrics, comparing in, comparing in notably to prostitution. And that was a very interesting kind of metaphor, a bit like the food metaphor that we mentioned earlier. So the way the French journalists would talk about that would be like, oh, chasing clicks is like selling oneself. It's really prostitution. It's really, it's really trashy. So trashy was a word that like kept coming back. Um, and, and, and kind of talking about it in terms of like, um, you know, uh, selling one's body and one's dignity, uh, which is a very specific way of thinking about prostitution too, um, to, uh, to get kind of higher traffic. And so I, I ended up having this kind of like really surprising and paradoxical findings. Um, and so the rest of the book is basically kind of, uh, making sense of why, uh, these two newsrooms reacted in such different ways, uh, to the rise of web analytics. And part of the answer, I think, has to do with these algorithmic publics and how they're being perceived um, by journalists in the U.S. and France. And so uh, to go pretty quickly here, um, I think that in the U.S., and that's in part because of this kind of long um, kind of tradition of, of market pressure and professionalization uh, kind of side by side, or to put it a bit differently, the fact that journalists in the U.S. professionalized, became more professionalized as a reaction and as a way to defend themselves against commercial encroachments on uh, their um, on their craft, um, that you know, in the U.S., basically uh, the way in which um, journalists made sense of algorithmic publics was only as a kind of commercial entity, a commercial entity that was important to get revenues for the website, right? So a commercial entity that uh, was measured, tracked. Um, uh, targeted by specific algorithms that would provide specific kinds of ads and price them differently. But, but an algorithmic public that didn't matter much for the journalists' kind of conceptions of themselves, right? What American journalists really cared about um, at the website I studied was the opinion of their peers. And so interestingly, for example, they cared a lot about Twitter because all the journalists are on Twitter. And so they cared a lot about having other journalists on Twitter like tweet or retweet um, their articles, but they didn't care about the public at large. The public at large was a commercial, primarily a kind of commercial object that was to be, shall we say, uh, maximized or optimized for uh, commercial purposes, right? Whereas in the French context, the way in which journalists made sense of these algorithmic publics was really that, you know, clicks represented, and here it's a bit of a caricature, but, you know, clicks represented almost like the nation, right? Or it represented public opinion. And as such, 
because they saw themselves as public intellectuals in charge of guiding opinion, right, in charge of um, of, of directing, of helping, of of politicizing, etc. Um, this kind of public opinion are broadly considered at the national level. They paid very close attention to clicks because they saw these clicks and these traffic numbers as the best kind of symbol or the best measurements, the only measurements that they had really um, of their impact in the public sphere. And as such, they fixated on it, right? Because it had become um, kind of woven into their professional identity. Uh, and so and so that's basically the arguments that I develop um, in the book. I wonder if you could say a bit uh, about how the organizations function, because again, this is another example of um, seemingly, you know, very different, very distinctive um, modes of organization, uh, some which were, I guess, kind of contradictory in what you might not expect, you know, um, again, going back to what you were saying about the kind of classic version of American journalism and, you know, things like markets. Well, actually, you know, the notebook you describe as a kind of quite, you know, sort of bureaucratic um, or at least an organization that uses bureaucracy to, to govern itself. Whilst, you know, Laplace had this kind of like informal, almost, I guess, you know, panoptic kind of Foucauldian um, way of like disciplining its staff. And and this, you know, bureaucracy and discipline seemed to run, you know, through almost everything, actually, whether it was like decisions about what's published or like how people get paid, you know, these modes of, of um institutional organization were really crucial. And it'd be good to hear about that, um, I guess, that kind of distinction and, and, and that difference. Sure. So, yeah. So, so you know, once I had kind of identified these different ways of dealing with metrics and, and you know, knowing that there is this kind of broader kind of macro structural differences between kind of journalistic fields in the U.S. and France. So question was like, well, like, so how does this play out at the organizational level and how can we kind of characterize uh, organizational modes of these two um, news websites, right? The Notebook and Laplace. And there, like, I ended up um, developing Developing this idea of like um, uh, bureaucratic versus disciplinary um, modes of organizations. And so here um, it really comes from organizational sociology um, and, and, and hadn't been applied to news organizations uh, until, uh, until this book, um, I think. But basically going back to, you know, kind of classics in organizational sociology, um, that is this like, uh, distinction between different ways in which um, organizations structure the production process. And most of this literature is actually about factories and plants and uh, the shop floor and, you know, uh, assembly lines. So not, not at all about, uh, not at all about newsrooms, but, but there are similarities. So um, the two kind of ideal types uh, of organizations that um, I found are on the one hand, this kind of bureaucratic uh, model, and on the other hand, what I call this disciplinary model. So in the bureaucratic model, um, all the rules are clear. So hierarchies are clear. There are clear sanctions and clear rewards for things. And the idea is that you make your way through a kind of hierarchical organization. Think about like Fordism, for example, right? Uh, which would be kind of a model of bureaucratic organization. And there are like kind of guidelines and templates and, and, and uh, organizational charts. And uh, everybody has kind of uh, well-defined roles uh, with a strong kind of division of labor and specialization. And so uh, you kind of move between these different boxes 
classes um, in a kind of hierarchical way. Whereas the disciplinary system is, um, is, doesn't function like that. Uh, and here again, of course, uh, this is a reference to Michel Foucault's work, um, but not only, for example, uh, Gideon Kunder, who is an organizational sociologist, kind of found a similar process um, in um, an engineering firm uh, that he studied in uh, the book Engineering Culture. Um, so the disciplinary model um, is, is very different. Um, it's about there are no clear hierarchies. The idea is that you should be able to grow and flourish the way you want, um, that we're not going to put you in a box. There won't be a strong specialization or division of labor. Instead, it's kind of seen as this kind of organic whole, right? Um, where like people do uh, what they're interested in and uh, it's kind of uh, more of a kind of flat level hierarchy, right? So without strong differences between management and workers, etc. cetera. Um, and this kind of uh, disciplinary model uh, is found a lot actually in Silicon Valley. So it's found a lot in kind of new technological firms and the kind of startup model, right? We're like, oh, we're all buddies hanging out together and we're all working a lot because it's fun and because we're friends. Um, but in fact, of course, what uh, the previous literature finds about um, disciplinary kind of cultures is that it also comes with this very strong personal and individualized pressure to perform, right? That um, somehow the kind of rewards and sanctions are not outside of yourself, like in the organ, like in the bureaucratic model, but instead they're like internalized um, as an individualized pressure to do better all the time. That can come with uh, pretty serious uh, psychological consequences uh, for the people who don't deal well with that kind of internalized pressure and anxiety. Um, and so, and so, you know, kind of bridging this literature, I was like, oh, it's really interesting because it describes so well what is going on at the notebook and Laplace, right? So at the notebook, basically what, what I found was this very clear kind of bureaucratic structure in the sense that uh, there was a clear organizational chart with a hierarchy. Um, Editors-in-chief were on top, and then there were section editors that had very clear roles, and then you had staff writers, and then you had copy editors. And everybody was like, very clear about where they were in the hierarchy. And in fact, it was so clear that even the office space was organized with kind of cubicles and dividers following that kind of organizational chart, right? And so as a result, it meant that people were very clear about what their tasks were, were, right? And where they were in the hierarchy. And so typically they knew whether like it was their responsibility or not to maximize traffic numbers. Right. And they knew, and that's something that we haven't talked about so much so far, but they knew whether they were in charge of writing what they call fast news or slow news. So fast news is more on the kind of click based type of evaluation. And it's a kind of like short, reactive kind of um, quick article that's, you know, going to do well in terms of traffic. Whereas slow news at the notebook was about like writing these long investigative articles or these stories that, you know, could go viral. I mean, it could always happen, but, but, but the idea was really that that was what made the editorial reputation of the website, right? And so every single staff writer knew very well where they were on that kind of, um, shall we say, division between slow and fast news or between click-based and editorial evaluation. Uh, there was no doubt about uh, what was expected of them and what they had to do in order to perform well. 
So that was a notebook. Whereas um, at Laplace, the French website, the situation was really different in the sense that there was no clear hierarchy. Uh, yes, there was a president, there was an editor-in-chief, and there was a managing editor. But, you know, everybody saw them more as friends and buddies and sometimes even gurus um, than just um, hierarchical superiors, right? And, and, and even the space of the newsroom was organized basically um, as a kind of big open space, kind of startup style, where everybody was kind of working with everybody else. Like there was no clear distinction of um, depending on like one's place in the hierarchy, right? And there, like really, we have to understand that like in part, that's because the founders of the French newsrooms come from the 1968, uh, May 68 culture in France. They were all kind of from the radical left. Uh, several of them had been Maoists before. Um, and so they kind of tried to create this, shall we say, new way of doing news production, right? They were like, oh, we're so tired with this kind of administrative bureaucratic model of big newspapers. We want, we want to be a group of friends. We want to be like a family. And so as a result, that meant that no one in the newsroom, as the newsroom grew over the years, no one had a clear sense of um, what specifically they were expected to do. They were expected to do everything well. And as a result, they all felt, all the staff writers, all the journalists felt that they had to maximize traffic numbers, that they had to both do quality journalism and to do well in terms of traffic. And, and, and they ended up internalizing that pressure to do everything, right? Uh, and that may sound familiar to academics in particular, because in a way, I think academics also uh, kind of think that they have to do everything well. And that comes from, that accounts for a lot of um, some of the psychological problems that, you know, are, are frequent in, in academia, because it's this kind of internalization process is not, it's not nothing. It comes with a real cost um, for the people involved. And so um, at the French website, at Laplace, um, I realized that, you know, people kept talking about traffic because they saw traffic numbers as a way to kind of reassure themselves that they were doing well, right? So when they had a, an article that had done well in terms of traffic, they were like, ah, well, at least like no one can say that I'm not bringing traffic to the website because I did. Look, I got like, you know, 50,000 views, like, ha. Ah. Great. Well, now I can breathe a bit. And so I saw this kind of internalization and kind of very emotional relationship to traffic, which I think comes from this kind of disciplinary model that was not present in the New York newsroom. The, this contrast, uh, I guess, brings us to maybe um, a con concluding question. Um, I mean, there's, there's loads of stuff we, we haven't touched on. Uh, the, the stuff about pay actually... Is, is particularly interesting and, you know, particularly how that exact model, the disciplinary model means that, you know, everybody is kind of seemingly getting the same, but actually there are loads of exceptions and it's, you know, this kind of complicated um, reintroduction almost of um, problematic forms of, you know, of, of almost kind of hierarchy, but um, I'm sort of conscious of um, getting you to reflect uh, maybe on what the book means uh, more generally beyond uh, the two case studies and the um, the analysis you you've already offered. So so w w where do you think the book speaks to? Uh, I guess the kind of future of um, journalistic practice and you know the, the way journalists and news organisations are responding to metrics. Um, you know now and and in the coming years. 
Sure. So I think the book wants to make, um, seeks to make three contributions. And, and so one is, one is about journalism and the other two are about slightly different things. And so perhaps I'll, I'll talk a tiny bit about, uh, about all three. So in terms of the future of journalism, well, of course, that's like, you know, the kind of million dollar question, right? Um, so, okay. So a couple of things. So first, um, I think that, um, this, so I did field work between 2011 and 2015, uh, and we are now in 2020 for better or worse. Um, and so, and so I think that things have changed a bit, uh, since I did uh, my field work and, uh, kind of got the material for that book, um, in the sense that, um, in the meantime, a lot of, uh, websites who had primarily kind of capitalized on, um, traffic numbers as a way to make, um, kind of, uh, as a way to get revenues, um, have either gone bankrupt, um, or like, uh, changed their business model radically. And so I think that like <clears throat> now what we see is that there are still some websites that like rely a lot on advertising revenues as a, as a key source of, um, of, of money. But, um, a lot of other news websites have moved more towards a kind of subscription based model. And so when you have, uh, when your revenues is basically half advertising revenue, half subscriptions, uh, online subscriptions, um, the way in which you use metrics is going to be a bit different, right? Because it's not going to be doing to be so much about maximizing traffic numbers, but, rather about like how to keep your audience loyal, right? How to kind of, um, how to um, have an audience that's going to follow you and will be ready to pay for the kind of content that you provide um, over the years. And so I think that that switched um, the discussion a bit. And so in a way, I think that like what I saw during my field work was the kind of early years and early, shall we say, uh, fascination slash fear um, about traffic metrics, but that now things have solidified a tiny bit. That said, um, and even in spite of this kind of evolution, um, I think that like um, what my book can, um, what, what my book shows is that really organizational processes are key, right? And that um, when you are a journalist, when you are a news editor, you have to think very carefully about what kind of incentives you create um, for staff writers in terms of like what counts as being a good member of the organization and what's the role of metrics in it. And I think that, of course, it's like, it's always going to be a double bind, right? On the one hand, you do want journalists to be aware of their readers and to be mindful of their readers. And you want them to some extent, so not always, uh, to take their readers' reactions into uh, consideration. But at the same time, you don't want clickbait or you don't want only clickbait, or you want clickbait to be in the service of um, more, shall we say, uh, ambitious editorial goals. And so how do you kind of navigate this tension? And I think that the book shows like these two very different ways um, in which news, two newsrooms kind of um, decided to solve that tension between editorial and clickbait evaluation. And, you know, um, I think that that gives kind of a range of, strategies and solutions that newsrooms may want to adopt or not um, when thinking about uh, about traffic metrics. So that's um, kind of the, of the kind of journalistic kind of contribution about um, how, how are we going to uh, deal with um, uh, metrics in the future uh, for web newsrooms and yet uh, keep that um, the quality news, the quality formations that we need for uh, democratic life and democratic debate to thrive.
The second contribution of the book um, is more about how do we think about algorithmic technologies more generally. Um, and so here I take the case of web analytics um, as, as an example to talk more broadly about all the algorithms that um, we here are regulating increasingly important part of our lives. Um, and so I think that the current debate about algorithms is really interesting and really important, especially showing how algorithms can be biased, um, how we are increasingly being surveilled uh, online and targeted for um, advertising purposes, which web analytics are definitely a part of, by the way, um, and how we're in this kind of state of surveillance capitalism, right? Uh, where algorithms on top of it are um, increasingly kind of biased and putting us in, um, shall we say, invisible cages where it's like harder and harder to escape. So <clears throat> for that debate, I think that a really important part of, of, of the book's contribution is to show that, um, yes, we are increasingly using algorithms in our lives and we're increasingly our actions and practices and business models and professional practices are increasingly mediated through algorithmic technologies. That said, um, we need to think about these technologies as symbolic um, instruments that can be um, adapted, interpreted, and used for different purposes, depending on local priorities, right? So by showing how journalists in France and in the U.S. Um, kind of uh, made sense of web analytics in these kind of radically different ways, um, I hope to show that um, other algorithms uh, can similarly be uh, used, reinterpreted, put into practice, bended for different uses, et cetera, than what we think about. And so that's an important contribution, especially being based at Stanford University in Silicon Valley, because I think that right now there is this sense, especially among technologists, that yeah, we're going to solve everything with an algorithm, right? Just put an algorithm on it and, you know, like whatever, all the world's problems are going to go away. Um, and what I, I think I show is that no, 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 things are not that simple. Well, not only can the instruments be faulty, but even if the instruments were perfect, people on the receiving end, so users, if you want to call them that life that way, in this case, journalists, um, are also going to use and interpret them in radically different ways, depending on the context. And so you have to be very mindful of this when you design technological tools to solve, um, you know, uh, the world's problems. And finally, um, the third contribution, and I guess that's like going to my, um, talking a tiny bit about my new project and kind of uh, perhaps ending on that note, is I've become really fascinated by this idea of algorithmic publics. And especially right now with COVID-19 and in the era of social distancing and the fact that most people now spend uh, a lot of their work lives, their social lives, um, romantic lives, everything lives uh, online uh, mediated through platforms that rely on analytics and algorithms to function. Um, we need to think about the role of these publics, uh, of these algorithmically mediated publics in um, in shaping what we do and how we interact um, in, 2000, in 2020. And so my next project is um, going to be specifically about these algorithmic publics and how they're managed. And so in order to look at that, um, I've been following influencers. And so that's kind of my, my next project where I study uh, influencers on TikTok, um, Instagram, 
and uh, YouTube and trying to understand how they perceive these algorithmic publics and how these algorithmic publics shape the kind of content that they produce, right? And so in an, in an age where we keep hearing about filter bubbles and uh, echo chambers and radicalization on YouTube and, um, and Instagram and other platforms, I'm trying to understand like what is the role of these um, algorithmically assembled publics um, and uh, and how can we kind of um, better understand what they do um, for the future of social practice in the digital world? Um, will this be a book? Yes, it will. <laughs>